Poem of the Man God Book 2, number 162, Jesus in the House in Capernaum after the Miracle on Elisha. From a vegetable garden, which is beginning to flourish in all its furrows, Jesus enters a very large kitchen where the two elder Marys, Mary of Clopas and Mary Salome, are cooking the supper. Peace to you. Oh, Jesus, Master! The two women turn around and greet him, one holding in her hands a lovely fish, which she is gutting, the other still holding a pot full of vegetables, which are boiling, and which she has just removed from the fire to see whether they were cooked. Their kind, withered faces, flushed by the fire and work, smile out of joy and seem to become younger and lovelier in their happiness. "'It will be ready in a moment, Jesus. Are you tired? You must be hungry,' says Aunt Mary, who has the familiarity of a relative and loves Jesus, I think, more than her own children. "'Not more than usual, but I will certainly eat with relish the good food that you and Mary have prepared for me, and the others will do the same. Here they are coming.' Your mother is upstairs, you know. Simon came. Oh, I am happy as a lark this evening. No, not really, because you know when I would be as happy as a king. Yes, I know. Jesus draws his aunt close to himself and kisses her forehead and then says, I know your desire and your sinless envy of Salome, but the day will come when you will be able to say like her, All my sons belong to Jesus. I am going to my mother. He goes out climbs the little outside staircase and goes on to the terrace which covers a full half of the house whereas the other half is taken up by a very large room from which come out the strong voices of men and at intervals Mary's gentle voice the limpid virginal voice of a girl which years have not affected the same voice that said I am the handmaid of the Lord and which sang lullabies to her baby Jesus goes near noiselessly smiling because he hears his mother say, My home is my son. I do not suffer being away from Nazareth, except when he is away. But if he is near me, oh, I need nothing else. And I am not afraid for my house. You are there. Oh, look, Jesus is here, shouts Alpheus of Sarah, who, facing the door, is the first to see Jesus. Yes, here I am. Peace to you all. Mother, he kisses his mother on her forehead and is kissed by her. He then turns to the unexpected guests, who are his cousin Simon, Alpheus of Sarah, Isaac the shepherd, and one Joseph, who was received by Jesus at Emmaus after the verdict of the Sanhedrin. We went to Nazareth, and Alpheus told us that we had to come here. We came, and Alpheus wanted to come with us. And also Simon, explains Isaac. I could not believe I was coming says Alpheus. I also wanted to see you. Stay a little time with you and with Mary, concludes Simon. And I am very happy to be with you. I did the right thing in not staying any longer as the people of Kadesh desired. When I arrived coming from Gergesa to Merim and going round the other side of the lake. Is that where you came from? Yes, I visited the places where I had already been and even farther away. I went as far as Giscala. What a long road, but what a great harvest. Do you know, Isaac, we were the guests of Rabbi Gamaliel. He was very kind to us, and then I met the synagogue leader of this Clearwater. He is coming, too. I entrust him to you, and then, and then I gained three disciples. Jesus smiles frankly, blissfully. Who are they? 
a little old man at Chorazim. I helped him some time ago, and the poor man, who was a true Israelite without prejudice, to show me his love, has worked his area as a perfect plowman works the soil. The other is a boy, five years old, perhaps a little more, intelligent and brave. I spoke also to him the first time I was at Bethsaida, and he remembered better than adults. The third is an old leper. I cured him near Chorazim one evening a long time ago, and then I left him. I have now found him again, announcing me on the mountains of Nephtali. And to confirm his words, he shows what is left of his hands, cured but partly impaired, and his feet, which also have been cured but are deformed, and yet he walks a long way. People realize how ill he was when they see what is left of him, and they believe his words, which are dressed with tears of gratitude. It was easy for me to speak there, because there was one who had already made me known, and had led other people to believe in me, and I was able to work many miracles. So much can be done by one who really believes. Alpheus nods assent without speaking, continuously absent-minded, while Simon lowers his head under the implicit reproach and Isaac rejoices wholeheartedly because of the joy of his master, who was about to tell of the miracle worked shortly before on Eli's little grandchild. But supper is ready, and the women, with Mary, prepare the table in the large room and take the dishes there, and then withdraw downstairs. Only the men remain, and Jesus offers, blesses, and hands out the portions. But only a few mouthfuls of food have been taken when Susanna goes upstairs, saying, Eli has come to with his servants and many gifts, but he would like to speak to you. I will come at once, or better still, tell him to come up. Susanna goes out and comes back shortly afterwards with old Eli and two servants who are carrying a large basket. Behind them, the women, with the exception of the Most Holy Mary, are casting curious glances. God be with you, my benefactor, greets the Pharisee. And with you, Eli, come in. What do you want? Is your grandson not well again? Oh, he is very well. He is jumping in the kitchen garden like a little kid. Before, I was so dumbfounded and bewildered that I failed to fulfill my duty. I wish to show you my gratitude, and I beg you not to refuse the little I am offering you, a little food for you and your friends. It is the produce of my fields, and I would like... I would like to have you at my table tomorrow to thank you once again and honor you with my friends. Do not refuse, Master. I would understand that you do not love me, and that if you cured Elisha, it was only for his sake, not mine. Thank you, but no gifts were needed. Every great and learned man accepts them. It is the custom. And I do, but I accept very willingly one gift only. Nay, I look for it. Which is... If I can, I will give it to you. Your hearts, your thoughts, give me them for your own good. But I consecrate mine to you, blessed Jesus. Can you doubt it? Yes, I I did you wrong, but now I have understood. I have also heard of the death of Doris, who offended you. Why are you smiling, Master? I was remembering something. I thought you did not believe what I was saying. Oh, no. I know that you were moved by Doris's death, even more than by this evening's miracle. But do not be afraid of God, if you have really understood, and if from now on you wish to be my friend. 
I can see that you really are a prophet. It is true. I was more afraid. I was coming to you more out of fear of punishment like Doris than because of the accident. And this evening I said, there you are. The punishment has come. And it is even more severe because it did not strike the old oak in its life, but in its love, in its joy for life, by striking the little oak in which I rejoiced. I understood that it would have been just as it was for Doris. You understood that it would have been just, but you did not believe yet in him who is good. You are right, but it is no longer so. Now I have understood. So are you coming to my house tomorrow? Eli, I had decided to leave at dawn, but I will postpone my departure by one day, that you may not think that I despise you. I will be with you tomorrow. Oh, you really are good. I will always remember it. Goodbye, Eli. Thank you for everything. This fruit is beautiful, and the cheese must be as tasty as butter, and the wine certainly very good. But you could have given everything to the poor in my name. There is something for them, if you wish so, at the bottom under the rest. It was an offering for you. Well, we will distribute it tomorrow together, before or after the meal, as you prefer. May the night be a peaceful one for you, Eli. And for you, goodbye. And he goes away with his servants. Peter, who with all the mimicry of which he is capable, has pulled out the contents of the basket to hand it back to the servants, puts the purse on the table in front of Jesus and says, as if he were concluding an internal speech, and it will be the first time that the old owl gives alms. It is true, confirms Matthew. I was greedy, but he surpassed me. He doubled his capital by usury. Well, if he mends his ways, it's a good thing, is it not? Says Isaac. It certainly is a good thing, and it appears to be so, states Philip and Bartholomew. Old Eli, a convert? Ah, ah, Peter laughs heartily. Simon, the cousin, who has been pensive all the time, says, Jesus, I would like, I, I would like to follow you, not like these, but at least as the women do. Let me join my mother and yours. They are all coming. I, I, a relative, I, I do not expect to have a place amongst the disciples, but at least, at least as good as a friend. May God bless you, my son. How long have I been waiting to hear you say that, shouts Mary Valthius. Come, I reject no one, neither do I force anyone. I do not even extract everything from any, everybody. I take what you can give me. It is a good thing that the women are not always alone when we go to places unknown to them. Thank you, brother. I am going to tell Mary, says Simon's mother, and she adds, she is down in her little room praying. She will be happy. It is rapidly growing dark. They light a lamp to go down the staircase, which is already dark in twilight, and some go to the right, some to the left, to rest. Jesus goes out and walks to the shore of the lake. The village is quiet. The streets are deserted. There is no one on the shore or on the lake in the moonless night. There are only stars to be seen in the sky and the murmur of the surf to be heard on the shingly shore. Jesus goes on board and the, the beached boat sits down, lays one arm on the edge and rests his head on it. I do not know whether he is thinking or praying. Matthew approaches him very quietly. Master, are you sleeping? 
he asked in a low voice. No, I am thinking. Come here beside me since you are not sleeping. I thought you were upset and I followed you. Are you not satisfied with your day's work? You touched Eli's heart. You acquired Simon of Alpheus as a disciple. Matthew, you are not a simple man like Peter and John. You are astute and learned. Be also frank. Would you be happy because of those conquests? But, Master, they are always better than I am, and you told me on that day that you were very happy because of my conversion. Yes, but you were really converted, and you were genuine in your evolution towards good. You came to me without any elaboration of thought. You came through the will of your spirit. But Eli is not like that. Neither is Simon. Only the surface of the former has been touched. The man, Eli, is shocked. Not the spirit, Eli. That is always the same. When the excitement caused by the miracles on Doris and his little grandchild is over, he will be the same Eli as yesterday and as always. Simon, he too is nothing but a man. If he had seen me insulted instead of honored, he would have pitied me, and as always, he would have left me. This evening he heard that a little old man, a child, a leper, can do what he, although a relative, cannot do. He saw the pride of a Pharisee bend before me, and he decided, also I. But those conversions brought about by the spur of human evaluations are not the ones that make me happy. On the contrary, they dishearten me. Stay with me, Matthew. It is not a moonlight night, but at least the stars are twinkling. In my heart this evening there is nothing but tears. Let your company be the star of your distressed master. Master, if I can, you can imagine. The trouble is that I am always a poor, miserable man, a good-for-nothing. I have sinned too much to be able to please you. I am not good at speaking. I do not yet know how to say the new, pure, holy words, now that I have left my old language of fraud and lust. And I am afraid I will never be able to speak to you and about you. No, Matthew, you are a man with all the painful experience of a man. You are the one who, having tasted mud and tasting now the celestial honey, can tell the two flavors and give their true analysis and understand and make your fellow creatures understand now and later. And they will believe you because you are the man, the poor man, who by his own will becomes the just man dreamt of by God. Let me, the man-God, lean on you, the mankind I have loved to the extent of leaving heaven for you and dying for you. No, not die. Don't tell me that you are dying for me. Not for you, Matthew, but for all the Matthews of the world and centuries. Embrace me, Matthew. Kiss your Christ for yourself and for everybody. Relieve my tiredness of an unappreciated Redeemer. I relieved you of your tiredness of a sinner. Wipe away my tears, because my bitterness, Matthew, is that I have been so little understood. Oh, Lord, Lord, yes, of course. And Matthew, sitting near the Master and clasping him with one arm, comforts him with his love. And the vision ends. My Way of Life from the Confraternity of the Precious Blood Chapter 3, The Trinity The Height of Mystery, A Proof of Love The Indwelling of the Trinity The Inner Life of God 
divine reasons for sharing the mystery of the Trinity. Chapter 3, The Trinity We have reasons in abundance for trusting our Heavenly Father, not the least of which have been evident proofs of His love. Every lover is driven by the double necessity of talking and listening, of revealing and discovering, for it is an authentic mark of love to desire to know and to be known. In our human loving, this double desire is never fully accomplished. Our fondest gestures bear an air of frustration, for they fall far short of the things we would say by them. Love's most penetrating glance never exhausts the possibilities of discovery. How can we make ourselves known to another when we know ourselves so sketchily? How can we know another as love demands, since we cannot search the inviolable regions of a man's mind and heart? We say what we can, unveiling sacred things to trustful eyes, and depend on another's belief in our words and gestures. We listen to all that we can hear, accepting it all on our own faith, in the Beloved's words, for in no other way can these things be ours. Our Heavenly Father is at home in our hearts, no stranger in the halls of our minds. To Him we are known, known as completely as even His infinite love could demand. And we are aghast at the generosity of the love that could endure in spite of such knowledge. But loving us, He would also be known by us, by us who cannot even penetrate to the soul of a man, let alone to the depth of divinity. So as lovers always do, he tells us his secrets, truths that we can have in no other way than by our faith in his divine lover's words. He can indeed tell us of himself, for he knows himself as we can never know ourselves. One of the supreme confidences God has made to his human friends, a divine secret that only God could know, is the story of the impenetrable activity within the Godhead, the story of the family life of God. He has, in his lover's eagerness to be known, told us of the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of three divine persons in one divine nature, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, who are yet, by their unity of nature, one God. The intense life of divinity itself is told to our trusting hearts. The Father, who is God eternally knowing, eternally generating, the Son, who is God eternally known, the Word eternally generated, the Holy Ghost, who is God eternally loved, the breath of love proceeding eternally from the perfect knower and the perfectly known. These are three persons, distinct one from another, but completely identical in their divine nature. This is a lover's surrender of secrets. It is not a truth told to stagger our minds and so to impress us, though certainly the truth is much too big for more than our most timid caress. The secret has been revealed to further and deepen our happiness, a contribution of love to the happiness of us who are so loved. Even to our dull eyes there is a tremendous kindness, a gentle protection of our love in this divine confidence, in our stumbling human fashion, we might so easily have seen God as utterly alone, as lonely as a bishop in his study, 
aloof from everything for lack of equals, cold for lack of a goodness worthy of his great heart, and seeing him thus we might have given him pity instead of admiration, adoration, and love. In our human experience, activity and change are so intertwined that we might easily think of the unchangeable God as condemned to a life of idleness, completely inactive, stagnant, with nothing to do and all eternity to face. And so have our own hearts go dead within us in a sorrow that would be close to revulsion. Because we have direct experience only with human persons, we might easily make the mistake of conceiving of God as an impersonal being, some kind of a huge blob of goodness, spectral, ghostly, without eyes or heart, and thus have rendered ourselves incapable of so intimately personal a relationship as love. In the trust that love so eagerly gives to a lover's words, and so helplessly since there is no other way of knowing that must be known, we know now that there is no loneliness in God, no lack of equals, no lack of lovableness worthy of infinite love. Rather, the joy, the truth, the beauty, the love of that divine life has spilled over in its abundance to make a world and to quench the thirst given to men for the life that is proper to God. He has told us that truth's bright beauty is never veiled and the allure of goodness never dimmed. In other words, that the activity of mind and heart that can shrink the hours to minutes in our clumsy world of time flames through all eternity with infinite intenseness. In that divine life, on the word of God, love is so personal as to be a person, wisdom and its generator so far superior to anything we can conceive as to be persons. Father, Son, the Holy Ghost are divine persons. The revelation of their eternal life is the divine answer to the absurdity of an impersonal God. The divine invitation to a love so penetrating as to be victorious possession and unconditional capitulation. God is most anxious that we know these divine secrets. He tells them plainly, though they be beyond our mind's power to understand. Depending with a lover's trust on his word, the very knowing of the existence of the Trinity will do so much for our love of God, so much for our living, so much for the honor and respect we will give to men who are to share that divine living now and for eternity. Knowing that there are three persons in one divine nature, let us know there is truth indeed in the lover's quest for union, however frail an image we achieve of the union of the divine three. It tells us there is truth in our estimate of activity, great activity, above all the activity of mind and heart that is entirely within our very selves. While it makes it no less clear that we are very wrong in identifying change, gain, and loss with the activity that is the very core of life. The fact of the Trinity reassures us in our defense of truth in our minds and love in our hearts, even at the cost of physical life, we are right in seeing these as the priceless gifts that cannot be surrendered. We are right in seeing falsehood and hate as the living death of a man. Love and truth are close indeed to the very life of divinity. 
falsehood and hate are most completely opposed to that divine life. By love and truth we are closest to God, by falsehood and hate farthest from him. God's secret of the Trinity lets us know clearly that God does not need creatures for his fatherhood, nor creation for the expression of his word, nor men or angels for his love. Within divinity itself there is eternal fatherhood, the infinite word, and living love. Everything that God has done outside the Godhead is the work of all three persons, a work done by virtue of the divine nature which is common to them all. It is to our comfort, and as an emphasis on the infin- of the infinite personalities of the Trinity, that we speak of the works of power as works of the Father, works of wisdom as works of the Son, and works of love as works of the Holy Ghost. There is new meaning in the solemn truth that we are the abode of God, his temples, now that we have been told of the Trinity. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, living the infinitely intense divine life, abide within us as we share that divine life by the gift of sanctifying grace. We know as God knows by the virtue of faith. We love as he loves by the virtue of charity. Thus, God is in us in a very special way as the object of knowledge and love, a special way that smacks strongly of the Trinitarian way of knower, known, and loved. Grace is the seat of glory. Heaven begins in the meanest house, on the vilest street, in the most disordered city, when grace enters the soul of a man living there. His life touches on the burning intensity of divine life, and the eternal fire is lighted in his soul. We begin to be at home in the family of God when the Trinity makes its home within the house of our soul.